Welcome to episode number five. I am Dan Doherty, your host. This is Rent Bits Rental Talk. And today I am in downtown Denver at the offices of HomeBot with the founder and CEO, Ernie Graham. Ernie, thank you for inviting me here. Thanks for having me, Dan. Oh, man. Well, first off, we've known each other forever. Um, your first company was called Peeply, right? And you sold that to Realtor? actually changed the name to Social Bios. Social Bios, a little bit better. Yeah, that yeah, sounds better. So Social Bios was sold to Realtor in what year was that? Uh, 2011. 2011. And then you stayed there for three, four years? About three and a half years. Grew that. About two and a half years longer than I thought. <laughs> right. Yeah, you had an earn out and everything else, right? Yeah. And then you had this idea of HomeBot, which is HomeBot now, right? HomeBot.ai. Yeah. Uh, tell us more about HomeBot. Well, Dan, it was interesting. So even before that, um, I was a lifelong tech entrepreneur, as you know, and decided to take a year off after the market crashed. And so I was a real estate agent for a long time. So between being a real estate agent, a broker, and then working at Realtor.com, I'd been ruminating on this idea um, for a long time uh, with my co-founder at Realtor.com around HomeBot, around creating content that consumers actually valued. I know it's like <laughs> a mind blowing thing. And, and so the, the concept really started with um, us recognizing how uh, amazing Zillow was at playing on the vanity of the consumer to get everybody to want to feel rich. I want to feel rich. Mm -hmm. Don't you want to feel rich? Of course. And, um, and so the idea around HomeBot was, hmm, well, instead of just making people feel rich, how about we create content that actually makes them rich. <clears throat> so HomeBot is this financial dashboard for the home that helps people uh, track the value of their home, track their loans, track their equity, track, 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 track. But then there's all this intelligence that is personalized to them that tells them how to save money and build wealth with what you know, will be probably the largest asset they'll ever own. So for example, I have my house. I put my address in your app right? Uh, you use artificial intelligence and data to then periodically tell me um, what my health is, house is worth, uh, potentially the cost savings I can do by uh, potentially refinancing. Uh, what else? Are there other? Oh, it, it, it goes on to uh, mortgage. If you had mortgage insurance on your home or you're paying mortgage insurance every month, HomeBot's going to tell you that when you can get rid of that mortgage insurance, um, if you qualify or if you might be eligible for a reverse mortgage to stop your mortgage payments, it'll, it'll tell you that. It'll tell you uh, lots of the, how much your home would rent for on Airbnb. All those things that help you see your home as an asset um, and save money and build wealth. But one thing I will say that's missing is that um, our business model, but it's also our product model, is that you can only get home bought through um, your real estate agent or a lender because we're complementing the human, the practitioner here with this intelligence. So you actually wouldn't put anything in. It would be, let's say the lender that closed your last deal or your last loan would put that information in there for you. And so you would just get an email notification, you'd click on it, and it would just feel a lot of magic to you, all this information which is there. And so you do that for uh, just for sale now or for rentals too, or is there an opportunity there? Um, so it's interesting. So um, lenders and agents have a lot of clients that are entrepreneurs and that um, that own properties for the purpose of renting them. 
So they will give HomeBot to those entrepreneurs. So let's say that you own 20 rental properties. Um, you want to keep track of the equity and the rental potential of all those as well. So in that context, yes, it would work for you as an entrepreneur. But our sort of our primary use case is that we want to empower Joe, Jill, homeowner to be like you know, asset managers, like a hedge fund manager, like super smart with the way they use equity, leverage equity, consolidate debt, all these things that help them build wealth with their home. So uh, you guys work directly with the the mortgage broker. So so for example, um, I have a real estate agent, and I get something that says you can refinance and save forty thousand dollars over the life of your loan. Would you like to do that? Then th does that go as a lead to the mortgage broker? Yeah, actually, uh, if if, if uh, you're already that mortgage broker's client, got it. It's not really a lead. What it is, it's it it turns you into a hand raiser. Got it. Instead of that. That um, loan officer berating you with emails, content marketing, product marketing, day in, day out. Which is annoying. Get that to beat you into submission right. <laughs> to respond to that. Instead, they're just giving you an application that you get to play with, see, engage with every single month, year after year. And when you're ready, when HomeBot says, hmm, this is a real, this has real potential for you, then you click on a button, pick up the, you know, click on their phone number, whatever it is to contact them to help you effectuate that transaction. Got it. Gosh. So you guys are growing rapidly. Oh, it's like, and it's going like crazy. I, I, I think we, we augment the human. So we augment the real estate agent, the lender. They want to do better. Trust me. They want to do better. Um, it's just hard for them to do better in, in an environment where there's shrinking margins and there's more, you know, there's just, they're taking on more customers. Sometimes I feel like I'm telling the Jerry Maguire story. It's like less money, less customers. Right. They want to do better. And I think that HomeBot's helping them do better by their clients and prospects in terms of delivering super high quality intelligence to them that empowers their client. So did you bootstrap this? Did you raise money? Tell us a story of, of how this came to be. Because this is something that, one, I don't know of anything else that's out there. Two, and maybe there is, but maybe you're the first movers in this. Uh, and two, um, was it hard to, to if you did raise money, did you raise money, was it hard or did you bootstrap this knowing with 100% certainty that this is going to be successful? So it's interesting. Um, we've always, or I've always bootstrapped. I didn't know anything about raising money. Um, even when I sold that last company to Realtor.com, um, that was all bootstrapped. Um, the kind of the companies I built before that all bootstraps, but coming into HomeBuy, um, one of the things that happened, we started to bootstrap right out of the shoot. Matter of fact, when we left realtor.com, um, Ira McMahon, my co-founder and I decided that we were going to spend about a year just testing with consumers. We had done well enough. We put enough money in the bank that we were going to parlay and we were going to go all in. We we're going to put our money where our mouth was and we're all we were going to do is just research with consumers the experience no business model and we did that for about a year and that was, was freaky it was scary because we're just burning through our money we're not getting paid a salary we're just burning through our savings but the reason we did that was because we didn't want to be beholden to a business or a customer or any model really it caused us to you know shape the consumer product to fit the monetization strategy. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Uh, in other words, we didn't want to be beholden to the man mm -hmm. to build this product for consumers. We just wanted to make sure that we were just 
crushing it in terms of delivering what we thought would be valuable content to the consumer. So when we did decide to move forward, it was around that time that um, somebody from 500 Startups, a big you know, Bay Area accelerator, actually their international accelerator, reached out to us. And um, I don't know, I had applied to other accelerators before and had just been uh, you know, shut down and you know, told no a million times. And I was like, ah, no, I don't care about this accelerator thing mm-hmm. anymore because it's so depressing to go down, <laughs> down the road and uh, then say no. But um, I took the call, I took the meeting with Firearm Startups so we were um, actually accepted into their batch 18 accelerator in San Francisco at the end of 2016. Out of how many applicants was it? Oh, it's, it's like thousands. thousands. Yeah. yeah. And um, I almost think that it was my irreverence to the process. Yep. Or I just didn't. I didn't give a shit. Right. Really. Yeah. I was just like I didn't care. Um, and I, you know, I think that investors, as well as any time, you know, like really care. They just, that's the level of transparency. You're not trying to shape the story. But to get back to your question, so we went through that program, and that program is about two things, accelerating your business, and B, fundraising, because they put money in, but then they also bring a tremendous amount of uh, venture capitalists, like the who's who of Silicon Valley and uh, New York Alley, you know, or Silicon Alley. And um, so we... We did end up raising money. So at the end of the story on this is that we raised $4.6 million. Wow. Okay. Um, but I'll tell you um, what I thought was going to be this dreamy dream ride out in the Bay Area of raising all this money out there. It didn't raise it out there. That's not the way it happened. I had 100 meetings over five months and got told no 100 times and was completely depressed by the process. I did get offers to change my entire business model and move out to the Bay Area. But I didn't believe in that. I just kind of stuck to my guns. Um, so it, it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't like a perfect. I don't think anybody's journey is perfect. Nope. Right. right. I mean, there are some, you know, obviously there's some Harvard magnacums out there that have had lots of exits, like Google, like you have. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, that um, you know are, have lived a charmed life, but it's almost like looking at Facebook or Instagram. There's Charmed life is actually not the reality. You know this. Right. It's just yeah. not the reality. So right. we ended up raising some from VC, but the bulk was from a big strategic corporate investor. So the strategic investor is a client of yours, or was a client of yours, or was interested in potentially being no, a client? Actually, the, I was just at a trade show. I met one of their uh, one of their executives, and um, it just so happened that the homebot story was something he tried to get off the ground many years ago. Uh-huh. And he resonated with the story. And uh, again, people to people. This was a friend of a friend um, that introduced us at a conference. I started showing him what we were working on. And then it was actually a year later that we got to do that we did a deal. Dude, stuff, you know how that works. Stuff to, I mean, I always say this when it comes to sales or anything like this. What you do today um, is what, uh, I'm sorry, what you close today was a function of what you were working on a year ago. Right. It's the long, you know, it's a long play. So many entrepreneurs come in, they they read a, a TechCrunch article of company XYZ just raised $25 million and it was the easiest thing ever. And, um, but that's not the reality of 99% of, of startups, yeah. right? It takes time, it takes effort, grit. it takes grit, it takes you sometimes refinancing your house or... Right, it takes, right. Crazy yeah. Because uh, 
you know, it, it's, it's interesting. You got to be crazy on this kind of stuff because statistically the odds are against you. And I always think about it too. It's like, you know, you go see a movie and you see some like new star that just it's an overnight success, right? And then you go onto IMDb and you look at their filmography. You're like, oh, holy crap, they've been doing crappy TV shows for 30 years or something like that. It's the same thing. With same thing. Yeah. You got to, you grind, 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 grind. And uh, you put yourself in position and maybe to get lucky, but it's usually a lot of hard work to put you in that position. But, you know, it's funny. I, uh, when we recruit um, employees at HomeBot, um, I think we have a super strong culture, servant leadership where we want to lift each other up. But I always tell people, I always have a very sobering story for folks. I always say, hey, listen, um, if you want to build wealth, long-term wealth, your odds are infinitely higher building wealth by simply going out there and getting a nine to five job, buying a home and building wealth with that home. And I know that's consistent with our thesis as a company, but we have to know a little bit about that. It's not working for a startup because statistically the odds are against you. The odds are against the startup succeeding. So I always find that interesting to see, especially millennials respond to that and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mm-hmm. You're telling me if I want to build wealth, don't work for a startup. Statistically, yeah. Don't work for a startup if you want to be a person bigger than yourself and you want to do something special, um, but be prepared for failure. Well, let's talk about hiring and and the whole HR stuff. So um, when I started at Google, Sheryl Sandberg, who's now at Facebook, she she told us that, listen, because you have some people coming in saying, hey, I want a, a management role or a title of a director and so forth. And so many people that came into Google just had an associate role or something like that. And she said, when you get a ticket on a rocket ship, you don't ask where the seat will be. Right? You just get on and you take off. Uh, and you're absolutely right. As it relates to startups, most of them will fail. Right. Um, if you want to be wealthier, uh, go to a nine to five job. Right. Don't work 40 hours a day. Go get some stock options, maybe somewhere in Silicon Valley at a at a company that's maybe publicly trade publicly traded. Sure. Go to Amazon over time. You'll do well from from a hiring perspective. One, what do you look for? And there is there anything unique that you do at HomeBot to really distinguish the A players, you know, something else that we, that, that Google told us, Omid Kordestani would say it's called the air, airport test. And if you sat next to someone at the airport for two, three, four hours, would you love that person and want to talk to them more? Or would you not want to talk to them more? And, and if the, if, if the answer is yes, I would like to talk to them more and learn more about them, then that would be a good hire. Right. And, and, and A players tend to hire A players at RentBits. We, we did something where uh, interview someone that was interviewing for Rempit's position, we would take them to Starbucks. But before we took them to Starbucks, we would, we would ask the um, espresso person or the person behind the counter to mess up their, their drink and see how they would react. And seven times out of ten, they would react like you would normally react. Oh, I'm sorry. This is this is the wrong drink. Can you please make a different one? But 30% of the time, they would get angry and demean the barista. We knew right then and there that person would not be perfect within our culture, sure. right? Is there anything that you guys do similarly to weed out those types of people? So it's interesting that you put it that way too, because um, the we call it the mercenary test uh, or a multiple test mercenary. 
And the mercenary test is somebody, first of all, there's nothing wrong with being a mercenary, right? You care about your own individual accomplishment, your own sandbox. Um, you care uh, definitely more about what you can accomplish in a day than your team can accomplish in a day. And I think in this industry, there are a lot of mercenaries. Contractors are mercenaries, right? Um, there are some good aspects of that. But when you're hiring an employee to be part of your culture, especially being a smaller startup where if you're 10 people and you're, or you're nine people, you're hiring somebody, that somebody's going to be 10% of your culture walking in the door. Very scary stuff. So one of the things that we do, and I won't get into the types of questions, but we're very sensitive to the, the, what we call the mercenary red flag. Do you care more about your own accomplishment than you do your team accomplishment? There's little subtleties and nuance, by the way, to answer questions. And it goes back to our, I would say, one of our cultural themes of servant leadership. How do you serve the other people on your team to make them better? And so if we feel like someone's a mercenary, they can't work for us. Um, and so, you know, again, it comes back to being a part of the team, lifting the team up. But I'll also say something about just being a part of a startup, which I think is super cool. I'm not trying to scare anybody off of being a startup. You know, most people don't really know what their um, potential is. Most of us don't. And the way hiring and the world is set up is you get, you know, it's almost like the Peter Principle, right? You get, you, you rise to the level of your incompetency, um, or you, you know, you get into a groove, a rut, and it's really hard to get out because your experience now sort of predetermines the job that you're going to get it. So the cool thing about startup and the thing that we really like to emphasize is that where you come in is not where you're going to end up, and that um, that you get to explore um, whether it's you come in as an office manager, maybe you, actually you find that it, the HR is what you desire to be, and you go get. Um, and actually, our office manager just did this. She just got she passed all the HR tests, and now she's getting experience in HR. Her ambition is to be a full-time HR person. You can't really do that inside of a traditional company, right? No. Nope. Whereas in a startup, you can come in and say, hey, maybe I'm full stack, but then you end up being front end because that's just where you desire to go. Um, I love sort of the new thinking around sort of strength-based coaching, strength-based management, where, you know, it's the... There's a story I once heard around, you know, in America anyway, that kids, like if you have a kid and they're going to school and they get a C in English and they get an A in math as a third grader, um, and you are going to get them a tutor, you can probably get them a tutor in English, the C, right, to get that up to an A. But strength-based says, no, no, C is good enough. That's the, meets the compulsory requirement to be, right, proficient. What you really should be doing is supporting people um, in the skill set that they're great at doing and really, you know, exploiting that greatness mm -hmm. and helping them exploit their own greatness in that. And that's where I bring it back to the startup. I think it's such a great opportunity to find your potential and to go after those things that they cause you to want to, you know, you know, work a hundred hours a day. And I'm not saying it's like that, but you know what I'm saying? Just to go crazy because you love it so much. Right. Instead of doing the things that we don't like doing, which ultimately we end up procrastinating on and we're just not good at it. Not good at it. Yep. So we shouldn't do those things. If it hurts to go like this, don't go like that. Right. So anyway, I know that's kind of a circuitous path here, but we, you know, mercenary, you can't hire mercenaries and expect to build a great culture. And you really want folks that can explore and learn their own potential and end up in the right spot. 
You know, uh, it, it reminds me of being a, a scout for professional baseball, let's say, and, and, and you're scouting um, a shortstop. And uh, that shortstop goes to single A and then double A. And then really the arm is so great, they become a pitcher, but never knew that they would be a great pitcher. Do you use any tools to look at the strengths of individuals that maybe they did not know they had? For example, maybe you hire someone as an office manager, but you see a lot of great sales characteristics with that person. Do you then say, hey, would you like to do a little more sales type stuff? Or do you have the person say, I'm actually more passionate about X and I want to learn as much as I possibly can about that? Well, we're not that structured on that right now, but we're learning exactly what you just said. It's a combination of both. It's a combination of A, um, having an environment where someone is comfortable saying, I don't really like doing this piece, but I really like doing this piece. Um, and then in combination with that, where the management team, where we are observing what people are better at. And instead of saying, oh, you really suck at this and say, oh, you're actually better at that. And if we have the opportunity to let them just focus on the things that they're great at and they love doing, then of course we want to position them that way. It, this is something that I get so excited about. Again, we're just 25 employees right now. I get so excited about sort of keeping that spirit, keeping that idea alive as we expand to 50, 100, 200 employees that, um, that people are not afraid to seek, you know, the job or the, the tweak on their job that makes them happier because they enjoy doing that more. I think it's harder to do it when you're smaller because you're a very matrix organization. People do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So it's harder for them to focus more on one thing if you if they sort of have to do five things. But that's that's actually a really cool part of it too because if they're doing five things, and I always said this for the first you know, year and a half, I was like, every day I do 10 things as a CEO and I suck at nine of them, right? Because it's completely, you just have to do those things. But also, I, you, you know, I think that employees coming into the organization where you're doing five different things across five different sort of disciplines, you, you, you actually get to learn the mm -hmm. one or two that you're particularly good at. Or that you enjoy. That's true. It's yeah. very true. Um, and, and that's inevitable with startups. You have to wear multiple hats, right? Yeah. Especially yeah. as a CEO. And, and if you don't like doing things you don't want to do, don't do a don't, startup. Right. But it's also, like I said, an opportunity. You know, there's a discipline opportunity, but also an opportunity to learn about you know, new skill sets. Well, we have time for one more question. Sure. And, uh, and I ask this a lot to entrepreneurs. For the other entrepreneurs that are looking to start a business, maybe they've never started a business, they're looking to, to leave their nine to five job, they have an idea. What is one thing that you would recommend to them uh, as a piece of advice? One thing. One thing. I know there's a lot. Um, I would have to say to um, test your idea on the side. Um, don't quit the nine to five job. Um, uh, explore, test, research, build that product, moonlight, without affecting your performance of your of your primary job. But what this means is that you're going to have to work eighty hours a week, and that's just. I mean, this whole moonlighting thing is not about stealing twenty hours from your job and working those right. twenty hours on the side. It means that you're going to have to work your job forty hours. And then work that other 
you really wanted to go, you need to start working 40 hours a week on the side, 80 hours a week. People talk about 80 hours, but when you're in 80 hours, you realize it is so mentally fatiguing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just very hard to do it this way. But I'd say you have to do it that way if you if you want to be able to fund. And also, it's a it's just a practical approach because, I hate to say it, most ideas aren't going to work. That's this right. is your, and, and actually, this is your way to, to work 40 hours a week on one idea. It fails. You go to the next idea, the next idea. And it's probably not going to be the first one. Right. So I would say moonlight on the side without digging your current. That's great advice. Validate your, your idea. Absolutely. It sounds like you validated your idea um, and, and maybe tweaked, tweaked the idea from what you originally thought it would be, but you validated it before you really went into it and raised money and so forth. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So validation, that's, that's so key. It's so true because there's so many ideas that are out there that will fail. I also, I mean, I know you didn't ask this, I know you said the last question, but I will say this is that I think that there is a culture of startup life that's very Facebooky. It's very, it looks so cool, right? The parties and the tennis shoes with logos and like all you can drink kombucha, right? When you get into the thick of it, startup life, that stuff is a nothing. And I say this a lot to our team. I go, when you really want to make something work, you focus on being a place that works great, not a great place to work. I'm not just trying to be Pollyannish about this. This is where I feel like so many people get it wrong. If you're only focusing on the lifestyle or the perks of the business, all this cool stuff, you'll probably fail. The energy is really going to be placed on being a place that works great. That means your idea is validated. You're putting the pieces in place to make that thing work. You're not focusing on the spoils. You're focusing on actually constructing a machine, an engine. And that's not always fun. Um, and then if you get that right, oh, there will be plenty of kombucha and ping pong tables and pool parties or whatever it is in your future. But I think sometimes I get a little worried that there's a lot of people that come, especially younger people that come into the startup world because of the allure of the lifestyle. And if nothing else, and you know this better than anybody else, man, if you don't have a work ethic, you don't have to be that smart. But if you aren't willing to outwork everybody else in the room, don't do it. That's right. It's a lot of hard work. You are amazing, Ernie. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here. It's great to see you. Man. Great to see you, too. Stuff.